At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode number eight of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're each taking a pitch from a Mariners pitcher and giving it to a different Mariners pitcher in a bit of an experimental segment on the Marine Layer podcast. We have a bit of a crazy trade scenario that we'd like to propose. It's been floated out there before, but we're going to dive into it a little bit and see how it would work for the Mariners. We'll look around baseball with our MLB wraparound, a lot of updated stuff with the Carlos Correa news, and a trade that could impact the Mariners with the Diamondbacks sending Dalton Varsho to the Blue Jays for a package of players. We'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. With that, let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into episode number eight of the Marine Layer Podcast. On Tuesday, December 27th, I'm back at home in the same area as Lyle now. Got sort of this makeshift makeshift setup around me, which makes it a lot more interesting, Lyle. You look, you know, like righteous and at home as ever, but I'm here adjusting on the fly. You're at home, but you're not at home because you're in a different studio and you're standing. Am I right? I am. Yeah, I'm going to be standing here for about an hour. So we'll see how that goes. Both my parents like standing desks and I have a sitting desk in my apartment uh, down in Oregon. But back here in in Seattle, standing desks only for the most part. So I'm going to stand for most of this episode. It's interesting, though. They got these comfortable mats down here that I can stand on. And it really doesn't make you feel like you're standing for that long. So I don't know. It's like a comfortable chair. A lot of people do that these days. Like I know a few people who stand while they work just because they prefer it. I never tried it. Maybe it's worth testing. It it's like you know it makes you more productive. It probably it for the most part I guess keeps you from slacking off, right? Which as a noted slack offer right here, that it, it would probably help a little bit if I spent some time during the day standing up and uh, and working. But you know. Whatever works, I think. I don't know if you you said you haven't really tried it, but I don't know. Maybe even like if you're like interviewing for something or doing whatever, like standing up, it sort of just keeps you focused for the most part. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's also funny that we're both back in Seattle for break or well, you're back in Seattle for Christmas break and we're seeing each other over the computer before we're seeing each other in person. Right. I think we just we need to invest we need to invest a little bit more into the uh, into the podcast setup before we could actually sit down and record one of these in person. We wouldn't stand up for that. Probably, you know, I'd see like two of us on a couch, like <laughs> each of the microphone in hand. That would probably sure. be a little bit easier. Um, but 
you know, I know your videography skills, dog. I think we need to upgrade a little bit to uh, to get to that point. I think I just meant in person, like non podcasting, even right, right, right. Well, we'll see each other. I think in two days now, so that'll be good. That's true. That will be good. All right. Well, now let's get to the Mar- Mariners part of this uh, episode. There a lot of hypotheticals today, Lyle, which I really enjoy because the last couple of weeks really haven't been that newsy besides, you know, little rumors floated here and there. And, you know, it's a lot of the same stuff. So we're trying to change it up a little bit and see, you know, something more fun that we can get here uh, with this first segment of this podcast. So as we said in the open, we're each going to pick a pitch today to from a current Mariners pitcher and give it to a different Mariners pitcher, whether it's hilarious or actually works out very well. I feel like we touch both of those here in this segment. So, Lyle, first thing I'm going to ask you, which pitch are you going to give a different Mariners pitcher? Okay, I just went full extreme with this because not only do I think it would be hilarious, but I think it would be objectively effective, and how could it not be? So... I took what might be the best pitch of any pitcher on the Mariners roster and Andres Munoz's fastball. If it's the best pitch or not, I guess it's up for debate. It's up there. I'm giving it to Marco Gonzalez because (laughs) if you put 102 miles an hour in the left arm of Marco Gonzalez, who is primarily a control guy, doesn't throw all that hard. He would look like Randy Johnson. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to picture I'm just trying to picture this. I mean, you're literally turning Marco Gonzalez from a replacement level fifth pitcher into some combination of Randy Johnson and Billy Wagner. I mean, it's just hilarious <laughs> to think about. Yeah. I mean, now Marco's secondary pitch would probably not be up to par with what Randy's was cuz Randy Johnson had such a good slider back in the day. But I mean, Marco does have a good cutter. Often his changeup works well when he's on. But man, if you mix those two pitches in with a 102 mile an hour fastball, just dotting it up for six, seven innings a night. Like I can't even picture Marco throwing 95 to see him get up onto the hill and throw 102 would be nuts. So would the would his cutter still be like 88, 89 or would it take a jump up to I would assume it would be, you know, a 97, 98 mile an hour cutter. Well, I guess we didn't get that far. I assumed the rest of his arsenal would just stay the same and his cutter's still going to be in the high 80s. But So honestly, sure. that would be even more funny, to be honest. I mean, he's throwing like an 88-mile-an-hour cutter and then all of a sudden when he decides to flip the seams around and throw it straight, <laughs> goes 102. I know Marco. Yeah, I, I don't think Marco would complain if, if that, that, was the, uh, that was the pitch you'd get. No, I don't think he'd complain one bit. I mean... I guess I didn't think about that part again because I just figured we're taking the one pitch, but because he's throwing his fastball so hard, is it implied that his cutter would be thrown harder? I think, well, let's just leave it at it's just the fastball because we're just taking specific pitches, not like we're going to give the right arm of Andres Munoz to the left arm of Marco Gonzalez. I feel that's a little extreme. So we're going to, I think we should just stick with the pitches. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's fair. And look, there's a lot of guys that could benefit from having the fastball of Andres Munoz. I mean, as hard as guys like George Kirby and Luis Castillo throw, you give them a couple extra miles an hour on that heater, they'd be even better. But I left those guys alone because their fastballs are already really good, where Marco Gonzalez throws a fastball in the high 80s to low 90s at best, where all of a sudden you give that guy triple digits to his left arm. 
I would love to see what that would look like. I wonder how his velocity would hold up over six innings. <laughs> well, that's the key. Munoz can do it for an inning, maybe two innings. He's not doing it for six. Now, the difference is if you're giving Marco Gonzalez, say, Justin Verlander's fastball, where we've consistently seen Verlander hit 100 miles an hour in the sixth, seventh, and eighth innings over the course of his career, that is like, you know, there would be no question there if Marco's velocity is holding up over six, seven, eight innings if he makes it that far. But we haven't seen Munoz start, so it'd be different. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how that would hold up. I mean, I'd certainly love to see it. I'd love to see the experiment. But would it work yeah, out? That's the question. That, <laughs> that would be great. I, I, I mean, really, and there's one thing for certain. Marco Gonzalez would not be on the trade block if he threw 102. Oh, no. No, he'd probably no. be He'd probably be the best arm on the roster if he was throwing 102. <laughs> right. And the thing you think about with that, does he even need a plus secondary? Like, probably not. Yeah, it probably just has to be league average. Like, you wouldn't need Randy Johnson's slider or anything like that if you gave him Andres Munoz's fastball or even Andres Munoz's slider, which is also an unbelievable pitch. Yeah, you'd probably just I, need the fastball and he could get away with everything else. I saw a stat floated out there on Twitter. I don't have it written down, but it, the, about uh, fastballs, like right down the middle at 102 plus miles an hour, that I don't think there was a single hit off a of pitch 102 miles an hour. If you just kept throwing it right down the middle, so that honestly, it just makes it like that much more deadly because we talk about guys being able to hit velocity, but once it gets to a certain point, like you can't hit it. I know. And I think the Alex Bregman home runoff Munoz in the playoffs was off a slider, not a fastball. Right. If I'm remembering right. So right. it just goes to show you get to a certain point. Like you're talking about, everybody says, oh, the faster it comes in, the faster it goes out. But it gets to a point where you don't even have a chance if you're facing guys like Munoz or if you want to look at other examples like Jordan Hicks of the Cardinals when he's healthy. It's just nearly impossible. Now, well, the pitch I picked is a little more logical and I think works in a little bit more seamlessly. I mentioned yours was more hilarious. Mine is a little bit more on the logical side. But I think I, I just can't even under uh, I can't even understate how much better this would make the Mariners if this was a thing. Well, I'm going to add Luis Castillo's changeup to Robbie Ray's arsenal. Think about that. Luis Castillo's changeup to Robbie Ray's already pretty good pitching arsenal. But our biggest complaint with Robbie is him only having really two plus pitches: his fastball and his slider. Now imagine adding that third plus pitch to Robbie Ray. Oh, that would be great, especially because Luis Castillo's changeup is so good. Like Robbie Ray won a Cy Young in 2021, basically getting away with only having a couple of plus pitches, like you mentioned. Now you take a changeup of one of, of a guy that's one of the best pitchers in baseball, Luis Castillo, and you give it to Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray might be, might be standing on the mound vying for another Cy Young award. So I, I didn't even know this about Luis Castillo's changeup. We knew it was a, a good changeup, and it was a good changeup this year as well. But I went back and I looked at 2019. I kind of laughed when I saw this, and I had to text you right away when I saw this because I'm like, that's a bit of an absurd number. His cha- Luis Castillo's changeup by Baseball Savant's run value, which is you know how many runs below or above average it allows over the course of an entire season. In 2019... 
Luis Castillo's changeup by run uh, by by run value was the third most valuable pitch in baseball, the entire league. Whoa, it was pretty pretty absurd. <laughs> pretty I guess absurd. I don't remember you sending me that, but that's wild. So, um, th- and the funny thing is, it just the finicky of of pitching. His changeup was actually a net negative to his arsenal in in twenty twenty two. It had a plus six run value, so he allowed six runs over average with that. But again, in twenty nineteen, the only pitches in all of baseball, all the entire league of baseball, that um, that had a that was better from run value was Lance Lynn's fastball and Garrett Cole's fastball, two guys that have, you know, just really supreme stuff, but their fastball really separates them apart. So he, it was the best off speed pitch in all of baseball in 2019. Best one, period. And you're adding that to Robbie Ray's arsenal, and it just, it's deadly. Do you know his strikeout rate with that pitch that year? Why don't you enlighten me? 47%. My God, it's like that's pretty nuts. much where Edwin. That's pretty much where Edwin Diaz was as a closer overall this year. And that was just Castillo's changeup. That would be a pitch to add for Robbie Ray. That's that's saying the least. I mean, Robbie obviously got better as the year went on. He struggled in the first month and a half, but then he added that two seamer or sinker, whatever you want to call it, and he got better after that. A lot better, I guess, until the postseason, but. Yeah, you give him Luis Castillo's changeup, and then he goes back to mixing in his fastball and slider. That is one dominant left-handed arm. That would be amazing. And Robbie has his own changeup, but he only threw it 21 times. But I want to give Robbie Ray a changeup that he knows is good and is is reliable. Because it, it's very reliable for Luis Castillo. Um, and the, the problem with Robbie, his only like... It would give him a, two strikeout pitches because Robbie Ray is a strikeout pitcher, and he struck out a lot of guys in 2022. But it wasn't at the same clip as he won a Cy Young uh, with in 2021. So you know it hurt him a little bit because those strikeouts, more often than not, turned into hard hit balls, and those balls usually ended up over the fence. Hence, he gave up 32 home runs in 2022. But if you throw in that changeup, which actually funny enough, Lyle Luis Castillo gave up the most home runs of any of his pitches on his changeup, which is why I actually thought it would fit Robbie Ray even better <laughs> because it, it fits right in with his arsenal. But just the uh, the opportunity to add another just pure strikeout pitch to Robbie Ray's arsenal gives him an option against both righties and lefties to get after a strikeout, and it it really solidifies his, his stuff so he doesn't really have to just rely only on that slider. It would bring him from good back to great where he was in 2021. You know, it's nice to sit here and talk about a changeup on the Mariners roster because you and I sat off air and kind of talked before this show about most of the Mariners have just about the exact same arsenal, which all these guys throw a fastball and a slider for the most part, especially the relievers. So it's nice to look at a guy like Castillo who has such a plus changeup and you can give it to somebody else on the roster who could probably benefit from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, just to the number, like... Just to think, it, it would be nice to see, you're right, a little bit more variety on this roster. Because I was honestly a little difficult because we came up with this idea for this segment. And I'm just sitting and looking at the Mariners roster. I'm like, hmm, okay, fastball slider. Hmm, okay, fastball slider. Okay, f- fastball slider cutter. Uh, fastball slider curveball. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, 
No, no fun pitches. It would have been really easy if this was the 2022 Mariners roster because we Eric Swanson throws a nasty splitter. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, perfect. But then we're like, mm, he's not on the roster anymore. He just got traded. So that right. wasn't an option. Yeah, but this was a fun segment. So that's for Mariners fans to think about as the offseason rolls on. What would Marco Gonzalez look like with Andres Munoz's fastball? And what would Robbie Ray look like with Luis Castillo's changeup? The latter half may be a little bit more realistic. But as we start to roll on here and transition, there have been some light rumors, very light, about this potential trade idea. So we thought we would sit here and talk about it. Fernando Tatis Jr., with all the big contracts the Padres have been signing this winter and now have accrued on their roster, there is some debate on whether the team is kind of fed up with his antics or not. We're not sitting here and saying he's getting traded, but we are sitting here and saying that we have listened to some things that have kind of talked about the idea that would the Padres listen to an offer for him. So there's two parts of this, right, TJ? The first part would be, what would a Fernando Tatis trade look like? And number two would be, would the Mariners inquire? They would inquire because Jerry loves A.J. Preller. All the business Jerry has done with A.J. Preller over the years has been very beneficial to the Mariners. So there's no doubt Jerry is picking up the phone on a trade and talking to Fernando Tatis Jr. Because we're at the point of the offseason where the Mariners' game plan is all in on trade. Because all the bats, right, as we talk about and complain and complain and complain about, they're all off the market now. So your only option right now is trade. So you bet a talent like that who will play next year at the age of 24 is on the market. You're picking up the phone and you are asking what the price is. So Fernando Tatis Jr. right now has about 12 years and $300 million on his contract extension that he signed uh, a couple years ago. That drives down his price a lot, if you think about it. Because what the pod, the reason the Padres would ever do this trade is because they look at all the guys they have on their roster and they say, you know what, we cannot afford to pay all of these contracts over the course of 10 years, which their contracts are right now. Let's take a look at a couple of their contracts. Manny Machado has an opt-out after this upcoming season, but he's under a 10-year, $300 million contract. Xander Bogarts just signed to an 11-year, $280 million contract. Fernando Tatis is two years into a three-year, sorry, 14-year, $340 million contract. Joe Musgrove, five years for $100 million. Robert Suarez, five years, $46 million as a reliever. What if they want to pay Juan Soto? He's going to ask for like 14 years, 450 plus. And you know, there's one guy they're obviously going to go after next year being a West Coast team, a certain two-way player that plays about 90 miles up the road in Los Angeles. So you look at all those contracts, you're like, okay, you can't pay all these guys and we might rather have someone else than Fernando Tatis Jr. Let's hear some offers. Let's spell this out a little bit because obviously Fernando Tatis Jr. as a player, when he's on the field, is one of the five to seven best players in this sport. I mean, the three seasons he's played so far, he has never had an OPS below 900. In fact, it's been well above 900 every single year. OPS plus has been above 150 every year, which is 50% better than league average. That should say enough. This guy is an offensive catalyst, and that's probably not putting it, putting enough emphasis on it. This guy is one of the best hitters in baseball when he's on the field. Problem is, 
he all of a sudden has become kind of a polarizing player between he obviously is currently serving a suspension for PEDs. He has had problems in the clubhouse with multiple guys. He had multiple motorcycle accidents last winter that caused wrist injuries that forced him to miss the first four months of the season. And then he got suspended. And he seemed like a bit of a me first player. So that's where you balance this, right? Is deciding is the talent enough and the trade package you're willing to give up potentially offsetting the baggage that Tatis could bring along with his elite play? That's the easiest yes I've ever said. Yes? Without doubt. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Because as we say, players like this don't come available. They're never available because teams like the Padres will give them a 14-year contract when they see how good that how good and how talented he is at the ripe young age of 21. So he almost never plays anywhere in his prime besides in a San Diego Padres uniform. That's why, you know, guys like Juan Soto don't come available ever. And the Padres, when they had that opportunity, they did it. But now the Padres are on the other side of it. What if the Padres are looking at their roster and they say, we would rather give the money we're going to give to Tatis to Juan Soto instead and let Tatis go somewhere else and get a trade package back for him? But what if? We heard Ryan Divish talking about this exact idea on his podcast where maybe some of this idea of ours stemmed from. But let's play this out a little bit because I am with you that, yes, Fernando Tatis Jr. probably needs to mature a little bit. At the same time, he is 24 years old and one of the best players in baseball when he's on the field. Guys like that are not available for trade almost ever. So let's spitball a couple ideas here. If the Mariners were to try to put together a trade package for Fernando Tatis and they agreed to eat the entirety of the contract, what does it look like? Because I want to do this in two parts. The first part being if they agree to eat if they agree to eat all of that contract. Okay. Uh, so if they agree to eat all that contract, that significantly drives down any return the Padres are going to get. That's just flat out. It's like, hey, we're literally giving you $300 million that you agreed to pay to someone else. That's it, right? That you are that is a, an enormous chunk of cash. Over, I think I said 12 years, 12 years, $300 million. That is what you are already committing in that trade. And when you're trading like this, it's because the Padres, again, it's not because they don't want Tatis on the team. It's because of that money. That is the reason. And they are at a disadvantage in leverage purposes. When you are saying, we just don't want to give him 300, we don't think we should give him $300 million. So that drives down the value. I still think it would cost a, you know, a good chunk of players. Jared's probably gone with that. You're going to give them, you know, one of your starting pitchers in the minors. It might even, it probably costs you Harry Ford too, to be honest. And that's probably where we start, right? With those three guys. But along with, you know, eating that $300 million, that is the biggest thing you're giving up here is the money, right? If, if you think, Trading for Fernando Tatis and that $300 million plus those three prospects you give up, you know, it works out, right? And it could be a reason they didn't they didn't want to sign any of the guys in this free agent class because they envisioned, hey, we would rather trade for a 24-year-old Fernando Tatis Jr. instead of give 
you know, a 29-year-old Trey Turner 11 years or a 30-year-old Xander Bogarts 11 years or a 28-year-old Carlos Correa 13 years or whatever, how, whatever contract he ends up getting. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But, you know, just a, a number of factors there. Okay, so if Correa – sorry, not Correa. If Tatis were to be traded, the package we've put together so far is the Mariners eat the entire contract, Kelnick goes back to San Diego – Harry Ford, the Mariners' top prospect, goes back to San Diego. And you said one pitcher. Let's call it Bryce Miller. Sure, yeah. yeah. Some upside Bryce Miller goes. Them. So Bryce Miller goes back to San Diego. That feels about right if the Mariners were going to eat all of the contract because they still get – the Padres still get their top prospect back in return. You get Kelnick, who's still only 23, and you know I still believe can be a star, and it's just too early in his career. And then Bryce Miller, a guy who – has a chance to, at the very least, be a good back-end reliever or a potential starter. Now, let's tweak this a little bit. Let's say Jerry Depoto tells A.J. Preller, we'll eat two-thirds of the contract. Then what do the Mariners give back in return? I don't know if they could afford it if that's the case. I think the biggest asset the Mariners have is that paying every cent of that contract. Otherwise, so, like, where, hypoth- what, you're, you're trading off the big league roster, like significant pieces off the big league roster, if that's the case. So you think it would be, again, let's let's put Kelnick, Ford, and Miller in that package already. You think it would take somebody like, I don't know, like giving Ty France back to the Padres, so to speak, that level? Could be more than that. Could, could be one of your starters. It, it could be, I mean, again... 24-year-old shortstop, you know, an MVP, every time he's on the field, he could win the MVP award in either league, every time. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So, you that's why I, you know, it, it would, I wouldn't be surprised if it would cost, you know, a Logan Gilbert or, or a George Kirby on top of that. I mean, that is the type of talent we're talking about. I just wonder how these teams view the whole PEDs thing, because obviously you and I believe guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame. The PEDs did not affect significantly who they were as players. I just wonder how other teams look at Tatis and say, could this affect his play? And that's why I wonder if the trade value that the Padres want back is what they'll get back. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's why Jerry gets paid the big bucks to analyze that. I, to be honest, doesn't really weigh too much of a factor. You know, it might bring down his value a little bit on the open market, and it affects his legacy for sure. But you know, for everything that happens to Fernando Tatis's legacy, he has earned that one hundred percent. From being stupid on a bicycle to not going through the proper measures to make sure stuff he's taking is legal in the CBA to you know anything out to his clubhouse incidents that has happened over multiple seasons now right and so you know you weigh you weigh all those factors but in the end right you offer him an opportunity to refurbish your legacy somewhere else and the the, the plus about if he were ever to end up in Seattle is he never has to worry about being the number one guy ever again he won't even if you, you know, he could want to be and they could challenge each other for it. But if he thinks, you know, there's too much pressure to be a number one player, he won't have to be. There's already a guy who has already embraced that. 
I was going to make two quick statements as we as we wrap this segment up here and kind of both the points that you just made. Number one, the Mariners need to get this guy a car service. If he comes to Seattle, they better make sure he's not riding by uh, motorcycles. And honestly, while you're at it, just get him a personal driver. Number two, on a better note, would be if you trade for him, he's likely playing left field. Seeing Fernando Tatis Jr. and Julio Rodriguez in the same outfield on the same team, potentially hitting one and two or two and three in your order. Oh, my God. That would be unbelievable. Do you think he would play left? You don't think he'd be at short? I mean, his shortstop defense is so bad. I feel like they'd probably move him to the outfield, especially because they're already committed to J.P. Crawford. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's something you put up with, and you have the best infield defense coach in the whole league. Yeah, that could be. But then what? You move J.P. to second then? For Fernando Tatis Jr.? Yes. I mean, that's fine. I'm just asking. (laughs) You move J.P. over to second and put Tatis at short and hope Perry Hill can fix his defense? Sure, yeah. And then, you know, I you know, that left field spot then it then is up in the air, but all the worry you have about a right handed bat and an extra bat in the lineup that you're hoping to fill out there in the outfield is solved for pretty much ninety nine percent. I mean you 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 have Fernando Tatis in your lineup now. Yeah. So yeah, for I don't sure. know. There's a couple of things from like the Padres side I look at, like you know, there's a whole number of reasons why they would never do this. First of all, because, well, it's Fernando Tatis Jr. and you don't just let players like that go. Those are the type of players you allow a longer leash to sort of work through their issues to do. But again, I mentioned the Machado opt-out at the end of this upcoming season. For how absurd the free agent market is this offseason, I mean, it's almost certain that Manny's going to have another great year this year. He's going to opt out and he's going to get another 10-year contract worth three hundred and twenty three hundred and thirty million dollars you would think so he could be you know off their books when the Padres look ahead and they're like oh well we can't afford this because Manny will probably go somewhere else as an older player and we can afford to keep Fernando so that's that was just kind of a bummer when I looked at that I'm like makes it a little less realistic that's probably true oh well oh well well this will be something we can monitor if these rumors ever get serious, then we'll dive into it some more. But it's definitely definitely interesting, to say the least, um, that that Fernando's even put himself in this uh, in this situation himself. But again, he's deserved everything he's got. Let's go to our MLB wraparound. There's been a lot of news around baseball this week. And in fact, this news dropped after we were done recording last Tuesday, a week ago. But Carlos Correa is still not signed. He agreed to a 13-year, $350 million deal with the Giants. Giants had some medical concerns with his ankle and a surgery that happened in 2014, reported by John Heyman. They were like, okay. We need more time to work through this deal. And while this is going on, Scott Boris, being the A-plus agent he is, goes behind the Giants' back, hits up Steve Cohen, is like, still got my, uh, I think it was the words were, what, three olives for, for a third baseman, I believe was were his words. 
And Steve Cohen says yes. And then the report comes out late Tuesday night that the Mets and Carlos Correa had agreed on a 12-year, $315 million contract. And it spurned everything. But we sit here a week later, and he's still not a Met. He has been so many different places. This is nuts. Which, by the way, let me just clean one thing up from last week. If you were listening to the show and you heard me say he signed with the Dodgers, please scratch that. Words are hard sometimes. At this rate, he could sign with the Dodgers. (laughs) At this rate, he could. Yeah, words are hard. He signed with the Giants last week. Then that deal fell through. Signed with the Mets reportedly on a 12-year, $315 million deal. And the last I've seen of the news is now all of a sudden the Mets are 55% sure they will sign him, 45% sure they will not. So this all of a sudden has become a toss-up again. I Yeah, I can't believe it. This has like the writing on the wall that somehow, some way, he's going to be a Minnesota twin again. I could see that, especially if the Twins are willing to bring him back on another short deal the way they did to start 2022. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. And like, it seemed like he enjoyed Minnesota too. And Minnesota, you know, it's not a place that attracts like the best free agents in the world. So they know, okay, we can ignore these issues short term because we're only going to give him like, you know, a short term contract because he's going to want to hit the open market again. So you'd give him, you know, that similar deal again. And we'll just ignore those ankle issues. As we said last week, Carlos Correa, his last three seasons, has played the three healthiest seasons of his career back to back to back. So these issues, you know, always come up when you're looking 10 years in the future. Now, if teams are actually concerned about players' health 10 years in the future, they would never make these 13, 14 year deals. But, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do to sign the player. So we end up in this whole mess of not being able to figure out, like, what is Correa thinking? What is Scott Boris thinking right now? Like, what will it take for them to sign? They're probably looking to any potential team that would give Correa some type of long-term extension to get him that security. It sounds like, from the reports so far, that Boris will not back down. He's trying to tell Steve Cohen, Carlos Correa deserves the 12 years and $315 million you originally agreed to. doesn't sound like they're willing to take much of a pay cut here, despite the medicals. So yeah, this is a tricky situation on both sides. Do the Mets let him go? Do they bite the bullet and believe he can stay healthy for the first half of this contract? Are Boris and Correa willing to take a little bit less money? Do they take another one-year deal to bet on Correa? Will these medicals pop up again next year? I mean, there are so many factors to this equation. Where at this point, I have no idea where this is going. Hey, Jerry, three years, a hundred million, opt out after the first season, just what you wanted. Please. (laughs) How about after Uh, everything you wanted? It could literally be a one year deal, some injury insurance on the back end, and you get a right, your right handed bat that you've always wanted. It's just sitting there. Three for what? One, 110, 120. What would it take? Yeah, that sounds about right. If you were going to give Correa $40 million a year on a shorter deal, I bet you he'd take that. Can it be an opt-out after two years, though? I just hate the idea that he'd play one year and then leave. Like, if you're going to get a player like Carlos Correa, just keep him around for at least a second year. That's fine. But again, everything we heard about the Mariners not want to sign these shortstops is they, they meet with these agents, and the agents 
off the bat say, yeah, we're going to, we're looking for 10, 11 years. And Jerry's like, well, I'm not going to do that. The Mariners have said they will not sign those long-term deals to older free agents. Julio Rodriguez is an exception. He's 21 years old. But if Carlos Correa is to the point where teams will only sign him for three years because of that concern and he won't get a 10-year deal, yeah, why not? You have nothing to lose. As we talked about with Shohei a couple weeks ago in terms of that contract paying for itself, like you don't think Carlos Correa in Seattle would pay for itself? Like <laughs> That'd be pretty good. We have heard some stuff about how he would fit in the Mariners clubhouse and that, you know, there's still some guys who don't like how the cheating scandal was handled in Houston and don't really like Correa. I think Ryan Divish said that multiple times over multiple off seasons when people have inquired if the Mariners would be interested in him. But regardless if that options there, man, I'm not even thinking, don't, don't think, don't overthink it. No, you have to do it. And you know what? Something tells me that if it's July or August and Correa is on pace for a six, six and a half win season, he's hitting in the middle of the lineup. He's hitting home runs. He's playing gold glove defense. I think guys will get over it. I think so, too. Let's let's hope it it leaves the window open. When I saw that number 55, 45, I'm like. It's like, so who is going to sign him? Like, I don't know. Well, (laughs) I don't know. There's that MLB scoops account, which I'm pretty sure is totally fake. But hey, they reported the Mariners are checking in on Correa. But I don't even think we need MLB scoops to know that. I think I mean, I'm sure they did. I'm sure I'm sure they've already checked multiple times to see what the, the, the price would be. But as long as Correa hasn't signed on any dotted line, it's an option. Last thing I'll say on Correa is this. If he has to go back to the Twins, you remember what he said right at the end of the year where he said, when I go into the Dior store and I see a product I want, I go and get it. I'm the same way. You want my product, you go get it. What if he had to re-sign with the Twins? He walks back into the building, first day of spring training down in Florida, and Rocco Baldelli hands him a broken Rolex because of his (laughs) broken leg. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I didn't even think about that. That's creative thinking. Oh, they should do that. Let's move on here. A signing that did happen and a signing that the Giants have finally made. They signed Michael Conforto. He gets a two-year deal. It's an opt-out after the first year. About exactly what you'd expect Conforto to take on this type of deal. It gives him all the power. But the Giants finally do get a bat. And their outfield all of a sudden is Mitch Hanniger, Jock Peterson, and Michael Conforto. It's not Aaron Judge, but that's a good outfield. It's a veteran outfield. I don't know how healthy they would be over the course of a season. It's kind of funny when you think about it. So they don't they they can't sign Aaron Judge. They don't get Correa done because of medicals, but they're going to have Michael Conforto who just missed an entire year with a shoulder issue and then Mitch who's been one of the most injured players in baseball over the course of his career signed and sealed in their outfield, which I'm just like, hmm, like it just shows you short-term deal versus long-term deal, how they look at medicals. But, you know, hitting-wise, they're going to be great. I, I think they've really, you know, put together a solid outfield. And combined, it probably won't be as good as one Aaron Judge, but it'll still be pretty good. For sure. I guess the only thing about Mitch's injuries are they've kind of all been freak injuries between fouling a ball off his ankle, and then he had the fouling a ball off his groin area, so we'll put it. Like, What's the right word? He hasn't had soft tissue injuries. 
it's all been bad luck. So I bet you the Giants medicals show that he has a chance to bounce back from that. We'll see. But in terms of Conforto, the guy who just signed, if he's healthy and that shoulder's recovered, we've seen this guy be one of the best, maybe not one of the best, but one of the better left-handed bats really in all of baseball when he's on the field. So this has a chance to really work out for the Giants. Yeah, it does. I mean, it would be an adjustment for all those guys hitting in that park. It's one of the most pitcher-friendly parks in baseball. So you would expect to see a little bit of a decline of offensive production from all those guys. But, I mean, even if they don't match up with the Dodgers, you know, that well, and I would still mostly view their offseason as a failure in in terms of what they set it at because they're, they they set this offseason. They're like, okay, we're signing one of those big guys. And they had – it sounded like they had deals with two of them and neither one – ended up signing the dotted line. So you would view that as a failure, but the consolation prize could be worse. It is interesting that the, that the giants are okay with giving these types of deals, these very, very player empowering contracts. And what I mean by that is they gave Carlos Rodon this type of deal last year where he had an opt out after one year. They're, they're okay. giving Conforto this deal with the opt out after one year, I guess it's their only option. Giants probably felt like they had to sign somebody but these deals are just tough on the team side because either Conforto has a great year and he leaves or he does not have a good year and he keeps all the money and picks up his second year option. And another problem in San Francisco is their farm system's not very good. A lot of their top guys haven't really panned out that much. So there's not a whole lot of depth behind those guys either. No, they have a couple big prospects, but they're far away. They're not close to the big leagues yet. Right. And you look at the guys they were counting on. I mean, Joey Bart was a number two overall pick and he can't stop going back and forth between AAA and the big leagues, uh, you know, among many guys. So their their roster is still very veteran laden, which is not great on the future outlook of the team. But this is also a franchise that won 107 games with a veteran laden roster two years ago. So you really never know what could happen. It could be a really good mix in the outfield. So that'll be something we uh, we look at as things go on. So there's a trade that happened this week that I think concerns the Mariners in a little bit, even though they weren't involved in this trade. It's a gauge. It will gauge what the asking price would eventually be for Brian Reynolds. Someone I didn't think was going to get traded, but thinking back on it makes a little bit more sense. Now, Dalton Varsho of the Diamondbacks, a 26-year-old outfielder, was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays for Gabriel Moreno, a former top 10 prospect, and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., uh, goes back to uh, to Arizona in this trade. And there's, again, comparisons here because Varsho is a 26-year-old outfielder. Brian Reynolds is a 27-year-old outfielder. And the price that um, the, the price that Toronto paid for him was a former top 10 prospect who's 22 years old and a starting caliber outfielder, right? That, that was the flat cost for, the, for him. And that seems like how it would uh, things would shake out for for Brian Reynolds as well. Yeah, this Reynolds trade package is not going to be cheap wherever he goes. That's for sure. So it'll be interesting to see how the Mariners view the Varsho trade and then kind of act upon it if they're still in on this Reynolds trade, which it sounds like they definitely will be. But I got to tell you. I think Dalton Varsho is a good player who just had a career year, and it makes sense why the Blue Jays would trade for a guy with four years of club control. I think the Diamondbacks came out of this trade looking really good. I mean, Gabriel Mm -hmm. Moreno was a top five prospect 
when he debuted last year. And he's barely played. Like this guy last year played 25 games in the big leagues and he put up a 111 OPS plus in that time. So 11% above league average. This guy could still absolutely live up to the potential that he had when he debuted last year and be one of the better catchers in baseball. The Diamondbacks had some room in that outfield to kind of spend or to kind of trade pieces away, even though Varsho's their best guy. They've got guys on the way and some guys already there where they felt like they needed an upgrade long-term at the catcher position. They might've just gotten it. I think it was a perfect storm for both sides, really, because you look at the Toronto catching situation, Alejandro Kirk, all-star coming off a career year as well. And then you got Danny Jansen behind him. So there really was nowhere for Gabriel Moreno to play. Just like for Dalton Varsho, hey, we sort of have an expendable asset here that we can trade, and it can be sort of just a win-win for both sides. Now, it won't be a win-win if this was actually a career year for Varsho, and he sort of comes back down to the hitting numbers that he was at before this past season, where he had a sub-100 WRC plus in both 2021 and 2020. So then the Diamondbacks might look a little bit better there. And I think Gabriel Moreno will little, really like hitting at Chase Field, which is just a band box. Place is amazing to hit in. So I don't know. This, this is sort of a, a long-term outlook trade. Um, but right now it looks pretty good for both sides. I'm with you. Obviously, Varsho can catch two if they need him to. With the two catchers Toronto has, he probably won't be doing much of it. Most of his time is probably going to be spent in center field. So the Blue Jays definitely just got better for a team that's a playoff team, plays in the AL East, which is extremely competitive, and needed some offense. They got it if Varsho continues to play well. I'll tell you, though, this Diamondbacks potential core of the future, when you look at it, Corbin Carroll, Jordan Lawler, Gabriel Moreno, Drew Jones, Alec Thomas. I mean, we know from fans of a team that just went through a rebuild like the Mariners, not every single one of those guys is going to work out. But a few of them might. And if that core kind of forms, the Diamondbacks have a chance to be really good long term. And we saw in a, in a short stint at the end of the year how good Corbin Carroll was. Right. And he's from here. He, he, yes. fun story time, Lyle. <laughs> I can tell a quick story. Uh, so my high school won a state championship our senior year. I really did a lot. I was basically the glorified cheerleader of the team. But hey, I got to sit in the dugout and watch our team beat a 15-year-old freshman, Corbin Carroll, on the mound from Lakeside High School in the championship game. I didn't think much of it when we played him at the time because he was 15. We'd kind of heard he was getting some Division I looks, which is already impressive when you're that young. But you just never know where it's going to go from there. The fact a couple years later, people are like, oh, yeah, he's probably going to go high in the first round. Diamondbacks take him. He becomes a top 10 prospect in baseball. And now I've seen comps to him potentially having a chance to be a Carl Crawford type player. Yeah, it's pretty wild to look back on that and say, yeah, that's who we beat. That's who we beat to win a state title. And I think you need to, if he ever gets inducted into the Hall of Fame, you need to show up to his speech and just chirp him in the background. Remember 2016? Yeah, remember when you were 15 and, and lost that state title game? I mean, I know if you could pick between Cooperstown and that, you'd get off the podium right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a that's always a fun. I remember you told me that for the first time. I was like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> well, good job. Hat tip to you, Lyle. Congrats on the state title. It's a small world. But yeah, Diamondbacks and Blue Jays both have a chance to benefit from that trade. 
Let's move on. Let's speak our minds here. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. Well, TJ, holiday season, weeks gone by since our last show. What are you thinking about? Well, you mentioned holiday season and it comes with cold weather. We had some of the worst cold weather I've ever seen here this past week. Now, I already say snow is overrated because especially here, like they don't plow the roads. They don't really salt the roads that much. They just kind of let the snow melt and go away. So it makes getting around like really tricky in this, you know, hilly climate of, of Seattle, Washington. But this past week, we literally had a sheet of ice everywhere. I mean, every exposed piece of ground was covered in about an eighth of an inch of ice. And I've it's honestly never been. There's never been like a time where I'm like, oh, I literally can't go anywhere. I mean, I literally tried to step outside and walk across the sidewalk. Could not do it. Couldn't do it. it it's just crazy. And it goes to my greater point, Lyle, that I'm going to say here on Speak Your Mind is that winter weather is extremely overrated. Why do you think we both went to school in Arizona? <laughs> right. Never have to worry about that ever. Arizona's winners are june july and august and what i mean by that is people don't go outside during that time because it's too hot compared to being too cold but i'll tell you what it might be boiling hot in your car during those months of the year in arizona but you don't have to shovel or you don't have to shovel snow you don't have to scrape ice off your car you just deal with the heat turn on the ac and then eventually it goes away i mean i got into my car on friday morning as i was trying to make a five minute drive I couldn't do it. I mean, I'm slipping around walking out there. I get into the car, grab the scraper because I'm ready to scrape some ice off the car. Couldn't do it. Like it would not come off the car. That's how thick the ice was. So then I say, okay, I'm going to just turn on the defrosters and see what happens. I sat there for five minutes. Nothing changed. And I was like, I don't think this is happening. Along with the fact it was so slippery getting out to the car, I was like, yeah, I don't think this is safe to drive. So I gave you up. You actually tried to go drive somewhere? Well, I didn't move the car an inch. I turned it on and I walked out there, but I didn't realize until I gave it a few minutes how awful it really was. I was like, yeah, I give up. My favorite thing this this week from seeing all just the compilation of videos of people trying to drive down these steep hills in downtown and Queen Anne and such. I mean, it was an it went exactly how you expect. I mean, all you had to do was move your car like an inch and it would start sliding down the hill. I'm like, oh, these people like you, you idiots. What are you doing? And the funny thing is, I was supposed to drive home that day. But thankfully, enough people told me, uh, yeah, you should probably drive Thursday night instead of Friday morning. It's probably the right call because I probably would have gotten in on Christmas Eve instead of the day before Christmas Eve uh, if I would have waited until Friday to drive because like the worst driving conditions I've ever seen. It's not even close. Yeah, it was so brutal. I'd never seen anything like the ice that we had. It was nuts. I mean, people were not on the roads and the people that were, like you said, ended up having some problems. I mean, those videos you're talking about, some people sunk it up with the the song the Tokyo Drift and it kind of fit the narrative because people were just slipping around nonstop. I mean there were people sliding down hills in Seattle without sleds. I know, you didn't need it. I mean you could I could, yeah, you could literally sit down and wherever you were and just go 
Yeah. Let's never have that again. How about that? I'm down. Okay. My speak my mind for this week. I'm a little delayed on seeing a certain episode of a TV show. So my family is all big fans of Seinfeld. I always liked it. And I've seen a few handfuls of episodes in my life, but I never religiously watched it the way a lot of my family did. I kind of regret not doing so. But we watched, in spirit of the holidays, the Festivus episode of Seinfeld, which if, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah, it really got me in the holiday spirit. And I'm half being sarcastic here because obviously the holidays are a time for cheer and happiness. If you don't know, the idea of Festivus, the holiday created in Seinfeld by George Costanza's father, who the story is he couldn't get George a Christmas present when he was a kid. So he decided to make up a holiday and present it to George. But the idea behind the holiday of Festivus is you air out all your grievances, aka you sit your family down or your friends down, and you basically yell at them all the problems you've had with them over the past year. In fact, Frank Costanza's line in that show, he goes, I've got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. So I was sitting there watching this episode and just dying laughing. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And now as the holidays go on moving forward, I might have to embrace some traditions of Festivus because I got to tell you, George (laughs) Costanza did not have a fun time. I don't think he gave it enough credit. There's a lot of aspects of the holiday Festivus that seem like a load of fun. I'll have to watch that episode. I'm going to be honest. I haven't watched much of any Seinfeld ever, but if I really, really need a TV show to watch, I think I'm going to have to watch all that and especially watch that. I mean, we have our go-tos what we watch around the holiday season around here, but that is not one of them. It might have to be because I'm not as familiar with Festivus as you seem to have learned this week. I I was way overdue to... to see it. Honestly, there's like a four minute clip of all the best moments from that episode. And that gives you a brief or a pretty good idea of what the holiday embraces. If you want to watch it, it's, it's on YouTube, but yeah, I had fun watching that. I don't know, like as, as fun as it is to be happy and jolly during the, during the holiday time. Sometimes I think it's funny for the change of pace and to see, yeah, I'm just going to tell my family all the reasons that I can't stand them. Like they do in Seinfeld. I, it's a great episode. If you haven't watched it, I recommend it. I might, we might have to watch that tonight. Then that that sounds like it would be uh, it would be really funny. I have one more thing before we we wrap up here, Lyle. I've okay. realized what the easiest job in the world is: being a concussion doctor for the NFL. I've realized that you can be much like umpires, awful at your job. And I mean, you just skate through the season without a problem, mostly because the Dolphins quarterback, uh, Tua Tagovailoa, was announced to have his third concussion this week. He got concussed in the second quarter of the game on Christmas. Was it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Regardless, I forget exactly which day it was, but we see a replay on Twitter the other day of, you know, Tua just slamming his head into the ground and he stayed in. For the rest of the game after that second quarter, the Dolphins did not score another point. He threw three interceptions in the fourth quarter. And then on Monday, came to the doctors and was like, oh, I'm having concussion symptoms. And Mike McDaniel, their head coach, was like, didn't notice anything. It's like, I'm wondering, like, what's the point of a concussion doctor if they can't see concussions? Because, like, <laughs> like, it's his third one now. Third. 
Yeah, it's not good. It, so it was Christmas Day that he got hurt, but right. Yeah, three picks after the concussion is not good. And we have a friend who's a huge Dolphins fan, and I'm rooting for the Dolphins because the Dolphins, in a lot of ways, in the last twenty years, have been similar to the M's. And I'm just rooting for my friend's success. But man, this is getting to be a slippery slope with Tua and all these concussions. I hope he's okay, and I hope he recovers. But I hope he takes the time he needs this time. Let me let me ask 16? you one thing though. Here. Yeah. One thing, though, here, you say the easiest job in the world is to be a concussion doctor in the NFL. Is that easier than what George Patton's job is for the Denver Broncos? Because now we actually do not know what he's doing as a GM because. And he's yeah, not he gets re- paid a lot more. He gets paid a lot more money than the concussion doctors do. So you never know. I mean, GM of the Denver Broncos, like now it sounds like doesn't get command of personnel doesn't get to hire the next head coach after Nathaniel Hackett was fired yesterday. Um, doesn't have any power over his own quarterback to make decisions on, uh, I would guess, have decisions on personnel or scheme or any of that. So, like, what is he doing? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, we spent enough time on the Broncos a couple weeks ago on this segment, but, man, that franchise is just Absolutely in shambles. I mean, who's going to take that job? They talked about it on NFL Live this week. I agree. I think Mina Kimes and Dan Orlovsky both said that is the least attractive job in the NFL. And I agree. And like Sean Payton, I guess his rights are technically still owned by the Saints. So you would have to trade for his rights, which they couldn't afford because they don't have a first round pick or a second round pick this year. So like you don't have anything to offer the Saints for the for his rights and and i'll bet you sean payton doesn't want to go to denver correct because he couldn't run what he wants to run there with russell wilson at quarterback right exactly so i mean that's why we see like dan quinn floated out there and you know dan quinn bringing brian schottenheimer (laughs) with him from dallas right so (laughs) essentially the denver broncos best scenario is to literally turn it into a walmart version of what Pete carroll runs (laughs) so Oh, can't escape it. No, but we'll see what happens there. We hope two is okay. That's for sure. Well, with that, that'll just about wrap up this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast. If you guys want to keep following us, you can do it in a bunch of different ways. If you want the full podcast, you can listen on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Amazon. There's a bunch of different ways. And if you like short form content, We put a bunch of that stuff on TikTok, YouTube Shorts, Instagram. We're also on Twitter. Follow all those accounts at MarineLayerPod. Well, for TJ Matthewson, this has been Lyle Goldstein. We wish you guys a happy new year, and we'll talk to you next week. 